Thank you so much for joining our Gen Church Wa podcast. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. It's 2022. We have so many exciting events, gatherings, and opportunities for you around Generations Church. If you'd like to learn more about these opportunities, these events, these gatherings, head over to mygenerations.church to check them out. So what does it mean to be spiritual? How does followership of Jesus look in an era of postmodernism and deconstruction? We're getting back into our series on 1 Corinthians called Masterclass, where the Apostle Paul will help us navigate our cultural moment. Let's respond to the scripture and spirit together. And the scripture this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to start in verse 17. It says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation that they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Will you guys bow with me? God, we just thank you so much for allowing us to gather here this morning, whether it's in person or online. God, we ask that you just let us focus on your word this morning, that we can become closer to you, that we can take away something from Kyle's message this morning, that you just speak through him so that we can see you more clearly. It's in your name. Amen. Welcome back to Masterclass. This is a master class on all of life. God, sex, marriage, politics, philosophy, you name it, we're covering it. And it's not my thoughts on it. What we are doing is we are working through the book of 1 Corinthians. The goal, as Paul writes this letter to this church, is that they become like Jesus. That every area of their life is shaped by him. Which means this is a not a make it up as you go type of spirituality. So much of our life, if we don't make things clear, we usually assume or fill in the gaps or just make it up. We're influenced by all kinds of different things. Shows, social media, friends, family. All speaking a word into our life. Some informed by scripture, some not. So what Paul does in this letter to the Corinthian church is he talks about a new reality available to them in Christ. That they are loved children of God, valuable to him. And the hope is that as they come to understand that in their core, in who they are, that that becomes expressed in every area of life, 
which means every area of life is open to change and transformation. Now, some of you, as I say that, you go, oh my goodness, are you sure that every area is open to change or transformation? And with that, I say, yes, which is why Paul covers so many different topics in this letter. In fact, last week, if you were with us, um, and if not, you can go back and check this out online, we actually talked about sexual integrity and what that looks like specifically for those in the area of extramarital kind of affairs outside the confines of marriage. And so when we look at our teaching passage today, we see that the master class helps us integrate faith, family, and mission as we resume our talk on sex. Some of you bristle at that, but here's, let me go back to this point. Your friends, your family members, your kids are all getting influenced are all having their minds made up, are all getting a word from someone or somewhere about how they should think about this. We as a church cannot be afraid to discuss this in a very honest, sincere, and loving way. And this is the reason that I I really appreciate 1 Corinthians. And it's the best book to use as the foundation for Masterclass because the letter was written to a church who had all kinds of different views on sex and marriage and relationships. Even as you think of dating and interaction. And in most cases, their view was screwed up. It wasn't God's best or ideal. And they had all these competing words speaking into their life these values these morals and ethics and we are no different and so if you thought that discussing sex outside of the relational covenant of marriage was difficult today we get a look at sex inside of marriage and its adjacent issues it's fun right It's, it's one of the things that I, this is one of the reasons why I, I, I teach in this way, is I try to go through books of the Bible and go verse by verse as much as possible. Because you can't avoid difficult stuff like this. The Bible is explicit and it's clear. And if we are really going to live as followers of Jesus in our world and our day and age, then we got to know what God says and take seriously what he says and allow that to shape and transform our life. We have all kinds of different influences that want to shape our view of relationships, specifically marriage. And as shocking as this may be, you have people in your life who are asking and wondering questions that pertain to relationships and marriage. Questions like, we are engaged in getting married. Can't we just sleep together? Monogamy isn't sexually fulfilling. Can we introduce another into the equation or possibly swing if we are both okay with it? Can I watch porn if it's with my spouse? My spouse and I are divorced. Can I sleep with them on occasion? My spouse and I had an open marriage, but now I'm following Jesus. Should I leave them? We only got married for citizenship reasons. I'm in love with someone else. Can I divorce them to be with my soulmate? 
I didn't make up those questions. Those are questions that are all I've been asked in my several years of ministry. And these are just the standard heterosexual questions. Very little to do with bi-curious or same-sex attracted or transgender relational questions. Not related to frequency or frustration at all. And so before we get into talking through the text this morning, let me take a moment to talk about this passage. We have a teaching text today that can have us wondering, are any of these words for me? Formation into Christ-likeness is a family responsibility. Therefore, the words today may need to be stored up for someone else. So when you hear a comment, instead of giving them bad advice, you give them or give them your advice, you point them back to the principle in God's word. Now, our guide for this masterclass is the Apostle Paul, and he's engaged in this correspondence with his church. He has heard some oral reports about what is going on. And in the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, he's dealt with what he has heard. This church also then wrote him a letter and said, hey, we've got some questions. Can you clear these questions up for us? And he's not afraid of their issues or their questions. And he's willing to be honest and transparent and share his thoughts not on what he thinks necessarily they should do, though he gives us some pastoral perspective. But he gives his best practical advice when it comes to how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus shapes marriage and singleness. We're going to get to that next week, lest you think we're just going to talk about one aspect. And he wrote to them, they returned with a report in this letter, and this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now, in response to the matters you wrote. And so if you have your Bible or, or your phone, I'd encourage you to pull that out and just start to read with me through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What you're going to see as Paul writes back to them, as he, he describes some, some principles that they should employ, you're going to see it sounds like he's all over the place. And you're like, Paul, what in the world are you talking about here? It's, it's kind of confusing. It seems like he's making a clear statement. But then there's other times where you're like, can kind of have your head like scratching, confused. Like, like I don't even know what to do with this, Paul, because I'm not sure it applies to me in my life. In fact, some of what I will share today as we work through this passage as best we can will literally come from a book called Hard sayings of Paul, meaning that sometimes when we read and engage with Scripture, there will be things that we have to kind of ponder on, that we'll have to reflect on, that we go, I'm not sure I quite understand that. And Paul was saying this to them, and it was difficult, and now you let 2,000 years almost pass, and we've got to be faithful to engage with wise people who have come and looked at these words before, we look at these words together, and specifically, we look at these words with the help of the Holy Spirit. Paul's words here, recorded and shared with us in this Bible, may be either normative for Christian life and faith generally, transcending all times and situations, or it may be corrective, intended to address a particular issue in a particular context without necessarily intending to have universal application 
It may seem like an awkward point at this time, but I want to make sure I pause here and say this. The scripture tells one unified story about how it points to Jesus and then why the person and work of Jesus matters. Therefore, it's important to engage with scripture and the spirit together with others. Reading the Bible is important, not as a letter of the law, but as a way to form us because we have so many other voices in our world that want to form us. And we must use the scripture and the spirit to counterform us into becoming like Jesus. We have all kinds of resources around Generations Church to help you read and engage the Bible faithfully. One that I've been using is this Bible Project app that was just released this year, and it literally helps you learn to read Scripture. And they take a lot of time focusing on the early chapters of Genesis in a way that Paul actually utilizes as he engages with this church when he talks about the union of marriage. And so let me give you Paul's main point today that Richard read through us in the last verse of uh, our teaching text today in chapter 7, verse 24. And then we're going to retrace that through some issues. Paul's driving principle is that the point all along has been that one should remain with God. The identity or status of a person is determined in God's eyes. Become what you are. God's child, God's love child, never forgotten, always with him, adopted into the family. And to live what you are. And what Paul will begin to address is that even a change of marital status, even a change of job status, even a change of location will not fulfill you. No matter what you do, where you think the grass is greener, that is not going to satisfy your heart. In every, in any case that you find yourself in, you should remain what you are, which is a loved and called, and I'll talk about that word here in a moment, child of God, a person of faith in Christ. So in verses 1 through 7 to the married, he says, stay married with full conjugal rights. In verses 8 and 9, he says to the unmarried and widows, it's good to remain unmarried. To verse, in verses 10 through 11 to the married, both partners, believers, remain married Verses 12 through 16, to those who are an unbelieving spouse, remain married. What's behind all this? The Corinthians had a flawed view of sexuality and marriage. Here was their thinking. If sexual immorality is bad, therefore sex is bad, therefore marriage is unnecessary, therefore let's not be married. As I say that, some of you go, Hold on, that logic seems off, seems a little bit flawed. But here, the people are trying to faithfully respond to God. And what Paul has just shared with them and what they've been told is to stop sleeping with the temple prostitutes, to withdraw from temple worship in that way, to stop just sleeping around with all kinds of people in the church. And so their logical conclusion was, okay, so sexual immorality is bad, which means sex is bad, which means Marriage ha- or sex happens in marriage, therefore marriage is unnecessary, so let's not be married. Let's stop being married. So in their writing to Paul, basically they're saying, so should we just all get divorced? <laughs> okay, yeah, what? <laughs> like, what is, what is going on here? And so what Paul says is he says, no, marriage is a good gift from God. Stay married. Remember the picture that is marriage. 
Marriage is a covenant relationship where two people agree to be unified. Again, here's Genesis, to become one. To selflessly love and serve each other. To sacrifice for each other. To display something, and not just something, an abstract idea, to display the love of God that he has for us. In marriage, it is a picture how we love and serve spouses when they do that, partners when they do that. Love and serve each other to display God's love and care for his people. Now, as Paul talks about this, and he talks about this issue, it maybe wonders, so what are the exceptions? We tend to want to go to like what the exceptions. So I, I should state, as Paul is, as he's talking about this here, it should be stated that Paul isn't advocating for marriage abuse or marital rape or that you should just set your spouse aside or set your will aside, but that you recognize your priority as a follower of Jesus for those of you who have been baptized into him, that your priority is first to Christ and it will show up in your sex life and that your relationship and response with and to your partner shapes them and communicates about the work of God in your life. Again, we're not talking about force or coercion. Sex or its withholding is not a weapon to be wielded for the power of one person over another. Christ willingly gave himself up for his bride, his church. He gave his life for us to be cleansed and restored, which means in your spousal relationship, if anything you do is a power play, is an attempt to jockey or move position to say, checkmate, I got you. You're living in sin. What Paul is saying is that you should love your spouse so dearly. You should be so for them to empower them, to see them flourish, to see them walk with God well that you make sure the story of God is lived out in your life and it shows up in how you treat them. See, on this side of the fall, through the work of Christ, the goal is to demonstrate the mutual pairing displayed in the garden. Neither Adam nor Eve were less than the other. They existed to display God's loving way to the world and each other. There was oneness. There was wholeness. And our relationships, specifically in marriage, are supposed to point back to reality in a world that says marriage is just a contract. It's just a transaction. It's just to serve each other, to elevate your social status. It's just to look good in front of others. And so when we take this concept we can begin to understand that sex and sexual desires are not dirty and are not shameful. God made us in the beginning to be united. And so sex is good. And within the Christian marriage is the most intimate celebration of life together in Christ. And so when Paul, he talks about giving husbands, give yourselves to your wives and wives, give yourselves to your husband. He's talking about a mutuality there. A shared hope, a shared promise, a shared perspective of Christ. And so throughout verses 
2 through 7, the way in which Paul speaks is it's not as if marriage is unequal. And too many still treat sex as though it were the privilege of the husband and the duty of the wife. But not so. It is the privilege and duty of both together, pointing back to the love that Christ has for them. Each belongs mutually to the other. In intercourse, as in nowhere else, husbands and wives symbolically express both their unity and mutuality, meaning it's the responsibility of both parties to build trust with their partner. Practically, this may mean to set down the video game controller, set down your phone, set down your book, put away the alternative voices in the world that say, give you those cheap, feel-good moments, and step out of that fantasy world and step into looking at your partner and ask them how you can best love and serve them and mutually care for them. So it means to stop reclusing and assume that sex can be summoned on demand and instead choose mutual activity to cultivate your relationship for the purpose of displaying God's love. Lest what's in your imagination or on your screen be more enticing than your spouse. Maybe it needs to be noted here that Paul not only prohibits the defrauding of one another in this matter, but also the very fact that the mutuality agreed to, argued for the, at the beginning in verses 3 and 4, prohibits the holding back of sexual relations as a means of manipulation within the marriage relationship. Such a choice both abuses human sexuality and destroys mutual love and respect. That's why it is not to be used as a power play. The mutuality to which Paul speaks is clear. Shocking to his day, the same is true today. With force and gentleness, relationships require looking at each partner seriously and helping them view themselves as if belonging first to God. And why is that necessary? Because like it or not, we have created levels or tiers of value intentionally or unintentionally, within the modern church in regards to marriage. This will be important as we discuss these tiers and as it relates to singleness next week in the second half of chapter 7. Being single, and to those of you in this room who are single, you are not less, you are not inadequate, you are not lower than those who are married. In fact, you are a valuable part of the family of God because you know those of friends who are married can often come to you and go, I am struggling here, what should I do? And a good friend, a good family member, they, a, I would say most importantly, a loved child of God helps their friends and their family reframe their perspective in light of that loved child of Godness. So Paul moves into this discussion of divorce and remarriage. Here again, they wanted to dissolve marriages. And we want to know oftentimes whether remarriages is even permitted. Two things need to be pointed out. First, Paul does not speak to the question of remarriage really at all. He's trying to speak to the priority of marriage and really how that points to God's covenant love. 
And if that's one's concern, then it must be wrestled with in a much larger context of Scripture, which, as I'm going, some of you are like, okay, we still got a lot to cover. There's some verses left. So I'm going to say, pause here for a moment. And if you've got question about remarriage and what that means and divorce and how does that work, and am I disqualified? Am I, am I outside God's will for me or my, you know, my spouse? Or how does that work? The reason we have our value story over sin is because we want to hear your story and help you understand God's story and how that shapes your life. And so let's have that conversation. In many cases, such marriages are clearly redemptive, even if it's not the ideal situation. And even if you wonder, how does my separation, how does my divorce, how does my relationship currently functioning or not functioning with my spouse work in light of this passage, what Paul says and points to again and again is the peace of God should dwell first in your heart. And as that peace of God dwells first in your heart, then attempt to live at peace with others. In this case, even the spouse. The point of this passage as Paul goes through this question of remarriage and divorce needs to be given a fair hearing. When a married man or woman hears and responds to the call of the gospel, but the wife does not, at least at the same time, let the new believer consider the spouse to be made holy, that is, set apart for the gospel, that is at least the good news of this passage, is that your transformation in your life, whenever you find Christ, whenever Christ finds you, whenever you say yes to Jesus, that as you say yes to Jesus and you look at your total life, that the transformation that is evident in your life, and there should be transformation, transforming your relationship, transforming your love life, that your transformation will point to the grace of God. And that maybe your spouse or partner who is skeptical, who is unsure, and is living outside the will of God may see something of the grace of God in your life and say, how do I become more like that? And I'd argue those closest to you will take immediate stock in your change because both your behavior and your world's words will change. Paul is being super clear here. Being a follower of Jesus involves no compromise in your followership of Jesus. Nothing is off limits, especially your sexual integrity. In your marriage. But oftentimes, we reduce ourselves to being married or not married, who we sleep with or who we don't. And in doing so, we actually settle for a lesser version of humanity. You are not the sum total of your spouse, you're the sum total of who God says you are a love child of God. And I'm going to keep saying that and repeating that because that's what Paul's words are for the Corinthians. That they are called to be this love child of God and out of that shape their life. And so I keep re repeating this. Called love child of God. What Paul is saying is framed by this word calling. What is calling? The concept of calling is first a way of describing Christian conversion. God calls people to be in Christ 
as we see in chapter 1, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians. The call comes to a person in a given social setting. This is the clear emphasis in all the verbs of the passage as we move through, especially as it's associated with the various social options. In verse 18 and 21 and 22, these two realities are pressed theologically in various ways. God's call to Christ that comes in these various settings renders these settings themselves altogether irrelevant. Because of this, change of setting is not necessary. Indeed, a person may live out their Christian life in whatever setting that call took place. By setting, it could mean relationships, job, city you reside in, or even the year 2022. Some of us want to go back. Some of us want to accelerate into a future year. But the reality is that the call of God on your life precisely at this moment is not to escape this time or place, but to communicate God's love and grace in your life precisely where he has placed you at this moment, January 9th, 2022. Which means some of you who go bowling this afternoon. How you bowl, well or not, is honestly irrelevant. Some of you want to win. Some of you want to do well. And that's glad that you want to, I'm glad that you want to do well, compete well. But regardless of the score, regardless of where you go, you will bring God's presence with you and communicate his love at your utmost being, how you smile, how you interact, how you cheer. So wherever you find yourself, Good or bad, and how you see it, isn't quite relevant in Paul's eyes. And precisely because these settings are irrelevant, if change does take place in this setting, that too is irrelevant. Paul says, he's like, it's not a command to stay in your situation. But what one is not to do is to seek change as though it had religious significance. Sometimes we weaponize and say, well, I'm sure God wants my life to be better. Therefore, I am going to change my situation. We justify it with religious principles. And what this passage is clearly saying is do not use religious reasons to justify the change. What Paul is saying is you are a love child of God. And out of that love, out of that core... You may seek a change, but let's just be honest and call it what it is. Sometimes we want to change because it's easier, because we think it's better. Because we think people will like us more in that other way, because we think we could make more money. And Paul is saying that they cannot use their followership of Christ to justify a change in setting. This passage does not speak to our ability to look at the world or others' lives and to respond to God's call to seek justice for them. That's not what this passage is talking about. As we live out our call of God, God's call in our life, we can seek about a change for another, to better others. But Paul is saying that we should be content in the situation that we find ourselves in. Although Paul comes from very close to seeing the setting in which one is called as calling itself, as job or vocation, does not ha- apply to what one does. 
but with ones faithfully serving Christ in whatever situation a person was at the time of their call to become one of Christ's followers. See, the presumption is that some point of God's grace will change your heart. And when you find yourself in that place, one of the areas of your life that will need to be evaluated in light of God's gracious work is marriage, is your job, or broader relationships, your work relationships, your familial relationships. Meaning that there will be conversion later in life, and we should not look down on the people who are being informed by the good news and becoming more like Christ. And as you live, you will have areas of your life open to Christ's work where you go, man, I can't believe I missed it. How was I like this before? And the goal is not to look down on that person, but to cheer them on and say, I'm glad that you are becoming more open to the work of God in your life. Within those situations, live in Christ's calling. So this is not a word of condemnation that you should know better, but this is a word of calling. Look at who you are and allow that to shape you. And at an instant, we may want to create rules. We want to say, well, this is the way things should be. This is what we should do. And in doing so, we cause harm and trauma to people that attempts to undermine the very work that God is doing. And Paul makes a statement to prove his exact point. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Okay, Paul, hold on. So we're talking about marriage and we're talking a little bit about job and divorce and remarriage. How does circumcision play into this? But as you look up and you see the demographic of the church, circumcision counted a lot for the Jew. It counted a lot. Above all else, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Israel. It was a sign that God had set them apart, that they were special and they were loved and they were in the family. And so in terms of one's relationship with God, status of any kind is totally irrelevant. A person is simply no better off one way or another. That does not mean that in a culture that provides opportunity, one should not seek to better oneself, but it does mean that whose life has been determined by God's call should not put any stock in doing so. Meaning your spiritual worth is not measured by your salary. Your spiritual worth is not measured by where you live. Your spiritual worth is not measured by your relationship status. And we need to be honest about our pursuit of better. Do not over-spiritualize it. Do not put value on your ability to change the externals of your life. Because, because our lives are determined by God's call and not by our situation, we need to learn to continue there as those who are before God. External circumstances can neither take away from nor add to the reality of God's adoption of you into his family. I've talked a lot about the call of God's on your life and how he's adopted into your family. And when you understand that reality, it will begin to shape your life. But we're forgetful people. The grass is greener. Something looks better. Something looks easier. I'll get more claps. I'll get more cheers. I'll get more likes elsewhere. And so what we have to do is return to the grace of God. 
And how do we return to the grace of God? We return to the grace of God through gratitude about his gracious adoption of us into his family. Because we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. He sees us. He sees you precisely as you are. Totally. Even in the areas that you don't totally see yourself or you're unaware of your own blind spots. He sees you. He sees all of you. And he loves. He says, you're mine. And as we receive our adoption papers, the reality is to step into that through faith. But Because we're forgetful and we tend to dwell on things that look better, which in this case, the Corinthians were trying to say, maybe if we just came up with some rules or we dissolve marriage, this would be easier or it would be better. Then maybe our faith life would be easy. But Paul wants them to look back to the posture that God has for them in Christ. He says, likewise, he who is called as a free man in Christ is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. You are loved. Brothers and sisters, each person who's remained with God is in the situation in which he is called. So here's what I want you to do. I want us to be grateful together. I want you to think about a memory of your, in your life for which you are grateful. Think about the birth of a child, a beautiful sunset. Maybe it's even that promotion. Think about something you are grateful for doesn't matter what it is as long as you feel gratitude when you think about it. You should give it a title and log it away. Give it a title. And here's what I want you to ask as you think about that memory. What did you feel in your body? How does your body feel? Maybe peace or lightness? What might God be communicating to you through that memory and the peace you feel? Maybe it's something like God is with me and likes to share his beauty with me with that sunset. Maybe it's the birth of that child and you go, man, I am so proud. I love this child to death. And recognize that's how God sees you. Maybe you succeeded in something, and you're like, man, that sure feels good. I, I like that pat on the back. I like those cheers. And that's how God is cheering for you, to display his love and his will in your life. There is great comfort found in belonging to Christ that we are accepted and loved without reservation. It is the comfort of living before God, that the love is not ignorant, love of human who can never really know knows us, that acceptance is not cheap acceptance of modern social psychology, which is only really concerned with producing productive and well-adjudicated consumers. Christ truly knows us, and his acceptance unites us to him, sanctifying, making us holy, setting us apart, telling us we are part of his family by teaching us moment by moment to love what is true and good and beautiful.
to know his love and his will. Modern life is weary. Relationships are messy. We're all heavy laden at different times. Wondering where are you, God? And when we accept and embrace our belonging to Christ, that inhuman burden is no longer ours to bear. Our sins are forgiven and the inhuman demands of our society are exposed in all their hollowness. As I pray, we're going to get ready to do communion and Richard's going to facilitate us through that. The reason why we do communion each and every week is to remind us that we were bought with a price of Jesus' gracious sacrifice for us. So in this moment, maybe we need to go back to the point where you said yes to Jesus and that he sees you loved and cherished. Maybe it's another memory and recognize that God was at work in that moment and he is still at work in this world and in your life. And this is an opportunity to be grateful. Let's pray. God, you are here and you are at work. So often we can think the grass is greener or life is better somewhere else. So often we can think if I could just escape this situation or scenario, I would be safe. But we first and foremost recognize that we are safe in your arms, fully loved and accepted. May that help transform our marriage relationships, our dating relationships, our sexuality, our work relationships, and much, much more. Change all of us, Lord, for we need you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.